This is an ABC podcast. Cast your mind back, if you're willing, to lockdown. What was your coping mechanism? Writing, sewing, drinking? Did you read continental philosophy? Did you reach the bottom of TikTok? Or did you adopt a pet? A furry creature that came to you with an unknown past and bright eyes. I'm Miyuki Ranta, and this is Earshot. Today, two stories about the intangible effect that animals can have on our lives. The Victorian city of Melbourne experienced the longest lockdown in the world. Producer Lisa DeVissi spent all 262 days of it with her adopted cat. And as the days stretched out, so did the questions Lisa had for her feline companion. Here she is, reporting from somewhere in there. My cat Tootie likes to watch me in my sleep, which would be terrifying if it weren't so hilarious. And if I didn't need a laugh before lockdown, I certainly do now. These days, sleep is uneasy. It's filled with claustrophobic dreams and worries from the day before. Waking up to a shadowy outline of what looks like the Batman towering over me has brought with it a peculiar kind of comfort. Black and fluffy with green eyes, Tootie blends easily into the shadows, and I think she knows it. What's this, Tootie? What's this one? In photos, she's rendered as a void, blurry like pictures of UFO sightings. Sometimes what I assume is a jumper left on the couch is actually just her curled up asleep. Often I'll walk past a dark corner of the room and realise it has eyes. In the two years she's lived with us, she's come partway out of her shell, suddenly appearing spectre-like at dinner time, only to utter a desperate meow. Mostly, though, she's happiest in dark, confined spaces. It's Friday night in the Melbourne lockdown. My partner Simon and I are attempting to simulate a pub dining experience by ordering pizzas and beer. Mid-bite, I'm struck by a feeling of low-key terror. I'm going to die one day, and so will Tootie. And could we ever say we've really known each other? Do we know each other right now? We share such close quarters. We witness each other's most private and vulnerable moments. We greet each other every morning and every night. And yet, it's not like we can sit down and have a conversation and hash things out together. I ask Simon if any of these things lead him to wonder about Tootie's past, her life before us, or why she is the way she is. I don't know. It's funny because I feel like I know her and I don't like have this desire to fill in the blanks of her life before she started living with us. I feel like I feel pretty content just knowing her and, you know, at the point in her life when she came along. But for some reason, I'm not content. Just the thought of it has me feeling like I want to jump out of my skin. I mean, put it down to the current circumstances, but I just can't shake that disconcerting feeling. Simon asks if I'm familiar with the work of French philosopher Jacques Derrida, who composed a 10-hour lecture on human-animal relationships, 
after his cat clocked him naked one time. I say, no, but I should absolutely follow that up. And as the words leave my mouth, inspiration strikes. Follow it up. I'll just follow it up. I'm a journalist, aren't I? It's lockdown, I need a hobby. What's to stop me using my professional skills in service of a personal curiosity? I love a low-stakes, high-return investigation. So the next morning, I get to work. Welcome to RSPCA Broken Hill Veterinary Hospital. To speak with our veterinary hospital, please hold the line. Sorting through Tootie's old records, I found an adoption health check card, which gives a few details about her early life. Her date of birth is listed as the 30th of May, 2014. A Gemini. The document also contains her vaccination history, the first of which occurred in the town of Broken Hill. Could this be where she was born? Hello, this is Emma. Hi, Emma. Um, my name is Lisa. I'm a producer at the ABC. I'm just calling because I'm working on a story uh, which involves mm. looking into my cat's adoption history. Yeah, I can see what I can do. Um, was she adopted from the RSPCA in Broken Hill? Or? Well, that's kind of what I wanted to know because on, according to... The document article, details a few different places where Tootie was vaccinated. The other place was RSPCA's Yaguna branch in Western Sydney. So how did she get from one to the other? So we do transfer between our shelters within the state. Um, so, you know, if an animal sits somewhere for a little while and maybe doesn't get enough interest, then um, sometimes we do do transfers to other shelters to just get them a different, I guess, audience mm -hmm. um, and maybe increase their chances of adoption. I ask Emma if the RSPCA keeps records of individual pets. We do. I would probably need, um, like, her, if, if it's got a tag number or an animal ID on her paperwork. Yes, I've got one. Okay. Do you know what her name was when she was adopted? Ah, yes. My absolute favourite part of this document. Yes, it says it was Sassy. Sassy. <laughs> <laughs> By the time Tootie came to live with us, she had been renamed Toothless. It's a reference to a 2010 animated kids film called How to Train Your Dragon, in which an awkward teenager named Hiccup befriends an injured dragon called Toothless. For us, the name Toothless gave way to a thousand iterations. Toothy, Tootie, Toot Toot, Vladimir Tootin, Queen Nefertuti. But these days, it's mostly just Tootie. Um, so I did find her um, in our shelter records. Um, there's not a huge amount of information, but I can see that she was surrendered in Broken Hill um, and began her vet treatment and then was transferred to Yaguna. But other than that, that's really all the information I have got. <laughs> Thank you so much for, for chasing it up. I really, really appreciate it. Yeah, that's okay. <laughs> that's fine. Thanks for the call. No worries. Thanks, Emma. Have a good day. See ya. Bye. Bye. I decided to follow up Simon's suggestion to look into Jacques Derrida, the French philosopher who had to reassess everything after being caught naked by his cat. David Jack is a freelance writer and academic. He holds a PhD in comparative literature from Monash University. A regular commentator and reviewer for the Australian Book Review, he's also a friend of Simon's and has given a few lectures on Derrida and animals in the past. 
I begin by asking him to unpack the story for me. Well, it's rather banal. Okay, coming out of the, uh, the shower, he suddenly finds himself naked in front of his cat. It's probably not an uncommon experience for people who live with cats, but what was surprising for Derrida, what made this encounter an event, was his uh, reaction um, to being seen naked by the cat. His first reaction or reflex, I think he calls it, was one of shame, uh, followed very closely by a sense of the absurd, like ashamed at being ashamed in the first place. Uh, so this is the starting point. So he, he quickly reaches an understanding that he suddenly doesn't know who or what is, is before him, uh, who or what is, is looking at him, or I guess more importantly, who or what he is in the eyes of the cat who is looking at him. So ultimately for Derrida, I guess what the animal gaze does is, is it returns us to ourselves. And he uses an interesting uh, idea of Nietzsche's, which Nietzsche called human beings the incomplete animal. We're yet to actually become the animals we are. And Derrida talks about us humans as being the uneasy animal, the animal who is not comfortable with itself. And he looks at the cat and he sees an animal which is not only comfortable with itself, <laughs> but in a sense is quite perfectly at one with its being, without this split that we're used to, which you can put simply as a kind of a, a we possess a kind of a, a, a consciousness of being. Yes, a kind of angst. <laughs> or an angst, if you like, yeah, a being which, which Heidegger just calls a being towards something, whether that's the future, whether it's the past, whether it's another being. I've always been an uneasy animal. Most of the time I can ignore my existential angst by doing other things. But now I'm trapped with it. Oh my god, you sound so desperate. Contrast it with Tootie, whose entire life has been confined to this apartment. She has no idea there's a global pandemic happening and isn't concerned about the details of my past or any of the things I feel so uneasy not knowing about her. But anyway, I'm sure I can think my way out of it. So my name is Meg. And my name is Kayla. And we were Toothless's foster parents of sorts for a time. Meg and Kayla are our former upstairs neighbours. They're the people we adopted Tootie from. So I worked at like a cafe restaurant with um, Toothless's dad at the time, Peter. Peter. I've seen his name in Tootie's adoption papers. He adopted her at the RSPCA in Yaguna. And he told me about this cat that he had um, that he needed looking after when he went on holidays and I immediately said, well, I'd be happy to do it. <laughs> I'd be happy to look after her. A few weeks in, Peter got in touch and asked if she could hold Toothless for a little longer. He wanted to extend his holiday. He messaged at the end of that week and, yeah, said that he'd met someone and he would like to kind of stay and see how that goes. He messaged his housemate and um, his housemate couldn't take her. And he was kind of, he was kind of just like, I don't know what to do, like, sorry to leave this with you kind of thing. Who abandons a pet like that? I know that people do all the time. There's something about cats in particular... Perhaps the fact that they bury their own shit or let you know when they don't want to be touched that makes people think they'd be okay surviving on their own. I try to imagine Tootie, 
our apartment block's Phantom of the Opera, living as a stray on the streets of my suburb. I don't think she'd survive very long at all. But I guess that's the thing about the Phantom. In the cold light of day, he's just a dweeb in a mask. I remember um, going downstairs and talking to our downstairs neighbour um, about the whole situation with Toothless, how he had this beautiful cat but we needed to find her a new home. And she told she had a bit of a Twitter following at the time. Meg and Kayla's former downstairs neighbour, my former next-door neighbour, is activist and freelance columnist Asha Wolf. She has 76.7 thousand followers on Twitter. And she told me that she would put a tweet out and just see see where it went, see if we could find her a home. And we were like, hell yeah, like that'd be super helpful. That day, I got a text from Simon, who had been sent Ash's tweet by a friend, which said, aren't you looking for a cat? And don't you live next door to each other? I managed to get Ash on the phone. She doesn't live next door anymore. So when I tweeted about Tootie, you, Lisa, came and did me and I didn't expect it. I didn't expect it to be anybody in my apartment block. But it was this wonderful little coincidence that you came and said, you know, oh, I'd love to adopt a cat. Of all the gin joints in all the world. And it was really apparent immediately that she was the cat for you. Um, You even slightly look similar, like you've got black hair and, you know, there was this sort of similarity of feeling because both of you are very You're very watchful of the world. As it turns out, my former neighbour Meg is still friends with Peter and has introduced us in a group chat. So I ask if he'd be up for talking to me. So now it's that sliver of time between lockdowns and the radio show I produce for has had the okay to come into the studio. I had spent the previous week preparing this interview with Texan-based philosopher Timothy Morton. Still uneasy with angst, still obsessed with the idea of getting to know Tootie better, I saw that Timothy had dedicated their book, Dark Ecology, to their cat. Brazenly, I slipped Jonathan, our show's presenter, some cat-related questions to ask. Here's your, here's your bonus cat section. Okay. Cats are, are, are famously unknowable. Sharing our living spaces with animals, what, what does that tell us about existing alongside the unknown, the other? Oh, for real? Um, If we could feel a little bit more like we coexist in this way with with mysterious beings, and we are also mysterious to ourselves, I think a lot of violence in the world would stop. I think think science isn't really about knowing everything. It's about realising how weird and mysterious things are and how fragile truth can be, you know? Things certainly are weird and mysterious, yeah. Um, but that's also terrifying and unbearable, so um, I feverishly type out a follow-up question. Can we live with, harmoniously with, with that sense of unknown, unknowability? Yeah, I think, um, because um, the real violence is thinking that, you know, you can illuminate everything with brilliant lights and sort of see everything all at once um, with your surveillance cameras. And, you know, the fact that you can't really do that means that the more you try, the more violent you have to get. Well, geez, maybe the investigation isn't the way to go from this. Ooh, Meg's friend Peter and Tootie's original owner has responded, and he's agreed to an interview. Hmm. Whoops. What's going on there? Um, I stupidly didn't hit record. P, 
Peter's face appears on the screen. His mouth moves, but it makes no sound. And as I fanny about with the tangled microphone cords, Tootie jumps up onto the table. Instinctively, I hold her up to the camera for Peter to see. Peter's eyes widen, a big smile spreads across his face. And if he had made a noise, or if I had pressed record, it probably would have sounded like this. Ooh! It would have been the first time he'd seen her in two years. Is it, is it working? I think so, yeah. Having built up so many theories about Peter and who he is, cat abandoner, travelling cat guy, or some kind of holiday-taking sicko, I'm struck by how normal he seems. In the year Tootie was born, Peter was 22 years old and spent long hours working in a hospo job. He lived with his best friend Tim in a cramped studio apartment in King's Cross, Sydney. In their spare time, they got stoned, played video games and listened to hip-hop. We thought one night, we were having a few drinks and, and stuff, and we thought, let's get a cat. We looked at RSPCA and there was one, uh, would have been like an hour away, and we're like, fuck it, let's go. And in our minds, we were thinking, we're only going to get a black cat, because that's what we wanted. That's what we just always liked the idea of. The black cats are just the coolest, in my opinion, or just all, all one-coloured one cats. They didn't have a car, so they paid $100 to Uber over. They made their way through the RSPCA shelter looking for a black kitten. And then we're about to leave and then my mate Tim goes, well, what's behind that gate? And then we had a look and there was a little black kitten which was toothless. And then we're like, oh, my God. This the conversation continues and we leave no stone unturned. I dig around for more details that might tell me more about who Tootie is, points in her life that could fill that gulf between me, the human, and Tootie, the cat. Peter moved around a lot. One time he moved back to Adelaide, his home city, and while he searched for a rental... Peter, along with Tootie, went to stay with his grandma and her budgie, Georgie. We said, let's introduce George to the cat. Let's see what happens. We held Georgie because it's a little budgie, so you can just hold it like that and the head sticking out. And then Tootie was just smelling and touching it. And then we, we let Georgie go and he was just sitting on the couch and then Toothless jumped up and they were just chilling. They were hanging out. They'd play and you can tell when they're playing because like Toothless would just try to like pat it on its head. It was the cutest, weirdest thing we've ever seen. Like, I didn't think a bird and a cat could be friends. Tootie has been pouring at my study door, trying to get in. I've been ignoring it for 10 minutes, trying to give Peter my full attention. A thought intrudes. Isn't it weird that you're ignoring your cat in order to learn more about and become closer to your cat? Maybe it's time to wrap this up. Long story short, Peter found himself in Melbourne with Tootie in tow, working night shifts at a cafe with Meg. Feeling stuck, he took up a friend's offer of a working holiday in Cambodia. He got there, loved it, and eventually decided to stay. Did you feel bad leaving Toothless? Because you spent so long with her, right? I did. I, I felt pretty bad. Um, but yeah, like I said, I just I wasn't really in a good spot in my life. And I, as bad as it sounds, I guess you have to look after yourself. First, but at the same time, I feel really bad for doing it because, like, I'm a, like my partner's pregnant right now, and imagine you can't just give up a kid. You have to like fight thick and thin for it. But I was also young at the same time, and I felt pretty bad doing it. The door gets pushed open, and Tootie runs in towards me. Simon must have let her in from the outside. She jumps up on the desk. Oh, yeah. oh there she is! Whoa, whoa. <laughs> Can you see her? Say hello. Tootie. Hey. Hang on. I'll put you on speaker. Hang on. Let's see. Hey, 
Okay, try now. Hang on, I'll go grab my partner and maybe he can um, hold her up to the camera for you. Hang on. Hey, mate, how are you? Hey. Say hello, Judy. Hey, Tupus. <laughs> hey, over here, look at me. She doesn't even care. Look at her. <laughs> It feels funny to come to the end of this investigation. Being swept up in a fervour has been a good distraction, but what exactly do I have to show for it? Sure, I learned a lot about Peter and a few biographical facts about Tootie, but it's another thing to attempt to know the unknowable. I think back to the chat I had with David Jack about Derrida and perceiving animals. Um, do you have pets yourself? It's probably one of the reasons I started reading this essay of Derrida's, uh, because I have a cat. And you felt the same thing. Can you relate to that sort of antsy-pantsy kind of <laughs> feeling when it's before you and looking at you? Look, yes. I think these days I am more or less resigned to the unknowability of, of my cat. I, I mean, resigned is, a, is perhaps too negative a term. I'll say it. I, let's say I, mean, I embrace it. My being with her, when when I really boil it down, is really nothing more than a spatial relationship. I, I wouldn't want to make too much of that. Also, I don't want to sound too cold. Um, <laughs> it really is about being with in the most basic sense, you know, of sometimes being next to or, or being in the same room. I guess Derrida's point is and this is to do with these ethics as well. We don't want to explain too much of it away. We don't want to fall into the trap of rationalising it too much, only because we'll definitely fall into error. Hi, Hi. Give me two seconds. Tootie will always be a mystery. She's the black, fluffy spectre residing in our home, watching me sleep. Perhaps the mystery is simply a feature of our relationship. It's an unscratchable itch. I guess being a bit itchy is a condition of being alive. Make sure you chew your food, Judy. Who is Tootie? A journalist investigates her cat. Was produced by Lisa DeVissi. The sound engineer was Kerry Dell. And I know you're dying to see a photo of Tootie, Toothless, Toot Toot, the dweeb in the mask. So head to the Earshot website. At 21, now award-winning crime writer Mark Brandy fell in love with Bridie, a staffy puppy. Bridie was Mark's loyal companion, friend and guardian through share houses, relationships and various careers. Here's the story he wrote for her when it was time to say goodbye. It's 1998. I'm 21 and things are happening fast. I've dropped out of law and started a massage course in Fitzroy. My girlfriend of two weeks has moved in and we've just brought a staffy home for Christmas. Only the dog would last. She came from a backyard breeder in Morwell, the runt of the litter, the last one left. We named her Bridie. We shared chaotic houses, parties, booze, arguments over nothing. Bridie let us know if things got too wild, pissing in our bed, chewing the furniture, ripping washing from the clothesline. 
but only my black jeans ever got the treatment. It was personal. My girlfriend left after five stormy years. While Bridie stayed with my parents, I paid poor tribute to Jarvis Cocker and Irvin Welsh. A flat above a shop, heavy substance abuse, and the worst toilet in Melbourne or Scotland. There was no room for a dog or much else. By the time I hit 30, I was mostly stable, clean, and with a new partner. Bridie rejoined me. So began a peaceful time of spacious backyards, long beach runs, and endless games of fetch at Princess Park. But there were troubles along the way. At various times, she was crushed by a pea plater, savaged by a husky, and, most seriously, sliced by a vet who found malignant cancer. The surgery worked, but we always felt the lingering fear of its return. In the end, though, after 16 years and four months, her little body had just had enough. Her kidneys were failing. There was internal bleeding. Her organs were giving up. They could treat her, but then those words. You have to decide if it's the right thing to do. In the awful fluorescence of the surgery, I held her close. The vet left the room. We debated the choice, but there was no choice. We had to let her go. I told myself I was lucky to be with her at the end, but I didn't believe it. I told her she was a good girl, the best girl, the one who'd seen me through, and I said it was okay to let go. We held her in our arms while the vet injected the lethal dose, her body weak, but then relaxed, on a blue cotton towel on the linoleum floor. Later, we sat in silence with wet cheeks, red eyes and raw throats, her empty basket in the corner, her water bowl half full. Sleepless, I walked the dark streets to the vet where we'd last felt her warmth just hours before. I went to the back of the building, guessing where she might be resting, and I placed my hands against the cool brick wall. The next morning, I rose early. The sun filled our living room with soft yellow light, and I ate my breakfast mechanically. Her basket was on the floor beside me, still empty in the warm sun. I felt a cold twisting in my stomach, and heaving sobs rose fast in my chest. The pain was immense. It was only later I began to understand. I'd felt something of her in the house that morning. It was as though she had come home with me the night before. She was back. I could feel it, but I didn't say anything. The next morning, my partner woke late and left in a rush, forgetting her phone, a necessity in her job. I drove fast through rain-slicked streets to the courthouse where she works. She met me outside. I handed her the phone. She studied it, quiet for a moment, then said softly, This morning, she was there. She explained how, while she was getting ready, the hallway door had suddenly opened. Then, maybe ten seconds later, the bedroom door. She was going to wake you, she said, choking back tears, like she always did. 
Every day since, I've seen her. Rising slowly from her basket while I make my coffee. Waiting for me in the front seat of the car. Chasing away the doves in the backyard. But it won't always be like this. We can't hold on forever. They say grief transforms us. But so does life. And now, looking back, I realise I was never her owner and she was never my pet. I was her companion while she was my guardian. This Friday, we pick up her ashes. It'll feel good to bring her home and we'll let her go. For real this time. Mark Brandy with his story for Bridie. It was produced by Jess Beneth and the sound engineer was Andrei Shabanov. I'm Miyuki Okiranta. Drop in again next time, somewhere within earshot. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.